Chapter 12 of The Kia, A New Zealand Problem by George Reginald Mariner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter 12 Kia Hunting. The spear grass crackles under the billy, and overhead is the winter sun. There's snow on the hills, there's frost in the gully. That minds me of things that I've seen and done. I mind the time when the snow was drifting and Billy and me was out for the night. We lay in the lee of a rock and waited, hungry and cold, for the morning light. David McKee Wright When it was discovered that the Kia was probably responsible for the annual loss of a large number of sheep, men at once set to work to try to exterminate him. Incited by the sheep owner and encouraged by the government, an organized massacre was begun and has continued during the last forty years resulting in the slaughter of thousands of these interesting birds. At first, nearly every shepherd and musterer carried firearms, and while going about their work, they lost no opportunity of shooting any kias that came within gunshot. The half-crown per head given by the sheep-owner did much to stimulate the shooting. When, however, owing to being much hunted, the kia became difficult to approach, the men were unable to afford the necessary time to stalk the bird, and other means of keeping down the pest had to be adopted. The station owners then employed men whose sole duty was to kill kias and rabbits. The position was no sinecure, for only the strong, agile, and fearless could undertake the work. The hunters were usually supplied with firearms, ammunition, food, horses, etc., and besides receiving a weekly wage, they were paid so much per head for all kias shot. In order to give a graphic idea of the ordinary routine of a key hunter's life, I cannot do better than quote from a letter from Mr. J. S. Ryan, who for many years hunted this mountain parrot around Mount White, Canterbury. He writes as follows, quote, To hunt the Kia for pleasure or profit is an undertaking that only those who are sound in wind and limb can indulge with safety. It is not for the untrained plainsmen or the tired Tims who would most probably take more time thinking how to get to the mountaintop than they would spend in climbing there. Kia hunting is mostly combined with rabbiting, since one could hardly hunt Kia from day to day throughout the year without a spell. Rabbiting between whiles on the lowlands affords the necessary change. The usual thing is a weekly wage, and so much per head for Kias, free tucker, footnote, food, end of footnote, for self and dogs, a pack horse, a riding horse, camping outfit, consisting of tent, billy, footnote, a tin can for boiling water, and a footnote, knife and fork, tomahawk, and piece of wire for grid, bread and flour, currants for duff, footnote, pudding, and a footnote, on wet days, butter, if there is any, with as much mutton and potatoes as you care to pack up. To these you add the weekly sporting paper and magazines. A good appetite between meals comes of its own accord. You may start out back, say, on Monday morning, after coming in for supplies. You have a fair day's ride out to the outback hut, where you pull up for the night, hobble the horses, and sleep like a top, after the usual good tea of chops, potatoes, and billy tea. Next morning you leave half your supplies at the hut, load up the pack horse with the remainder, and then start on your way again. Now comes the river, which you cross continually, as you work your way up to its source in the same gorge, until you reach the very heart of the mountains, and the towering rocky walls close in on you 
on either side. It is here that the shrill whistle of the blue mountain duck strikes on your ear through the rush and roar of the river as it twists and leaps among the boulders and dashes its spray onto the bush that comes right down to the water's edge. You now look out for the best camping ground you can find. Having found a place that suits you, you hobble the horses, after taking them back to the last bit of good feed you passed, pitch your camp, tie up, and feed the dogs. Break barch twigs for a bed, get supper, read for a while before lights out, and then sleep. And how you sleep among the mountains after a long day's ride or climb. Now you are in the very heart of the Kia country, and perhaps you rouse up to hear the dogs barking and the Kias singing out overhead. Or you have been dreaming that you are on your way back to the station with the pack horse loaded up with Kia's heads and your fortune made, and you wake to find a dog loose among the tucker. In either case, it's time to get up and get a move on, if you are to be among the Kias before they camp for the day. Having breakfasted on the inevitable chops, you pack your lunch for the day's hunting, the said lunch consisting of more chops, cold, slice of bread and butter, and a chunk, footnote, piece, close footnote, of brownie, footnote, a kind of currant loaf, and a footnote, and tea and sugar, for you always take the billy with you. Cartridges and a light single-barreled gun, slung over the shoulder, finish your equipment. You put out the fire, unloose a dog, see that the others are all right, and give them a parting word and pat. Grip your stick, on which your life may depend, in ticklish places. And off you go for two or three hours, climb to the top, just as dawn is beginning to show in the east, and there is still hardly light to enable you to pick your way among the boulders and fallen timber. The reason you always take a dog with you in key hunting is that if you should have the ill luck to break your neck, the dog in time will, owing to hunger, find his way back to the homestead and thus give silent notice that something has happened to his master. Then the search parties go out. Nip, my favorite spaniel, could spot a Kia on the wing long before I could. When the birds are flying far overhead, they will call out, Kio, with a last O long and drawn out. When Nip heard this characteristic note, up would go his head, and he would almost stand on his hind legs. To see him hunt for that Kia in the sky was laughable indeed. I could tell when he found the bird by his intense gaze, and by the beating of his stumpy tail on the ground. Then I would whistle to the Kia, and unsling my gun, telling Nip to watch the Kia as it circled round and dived down. The old dog has fallen backwards many a time, so intent was he on keeping the Kia in sight. Down would come the bird, well within gunshot. I've had to walk away, so that I should not blow one to pieces. When one is paid for killing the birds, and five shillings depend on the shot, you do not give the bird a sporting chance by firing at it on the wing. In hunting the Kia, you must be up on the mountaintop about daylight to catch the birds going home after their night's carouse. The Kia, however, will be out feeding and courting all day and all night as well. I have killed them at all hours from the first streak of dawn to the last faint glimmer of daylight. The best time, however, is either in the evening or the morning, when they are going to their feeding grounds or leaving them. They mostly go in pairs in the brooding season. Then, when the young are able to fly about, they travel for a while in families, and afterwards, towards the winter, they club together. I once counted over thirty in a mob, but alas, through having been among the rabbits, my ammunition had almost run out, and I only got nine out of them. The Kia is, I am confident, 
the most inquisitive bird alive. One may be just visible as a speck in the sky, but if it has no important engagement on hand, a whistle will often bring it down to see you at once. It was my habit when shooting keas to pick off the outsiders or timid ones first, if there were more than two. I always took two at a time. At the report from the gun, the others would give a nervous start, erect a few feathers that do duty for a topknot, and look at me as much as to say, what the dickens was that noise? You may go for days without seeing a single bird, for kia hunting is rather a lottery. But I would keep going where they had been seen at the sheep, and I was bound to get them in the long run. The kia hunter's life is not all beer and skittles. Still, with all the hardships through getting caught in fog or snow on the tops, and so forth, there is something fascinating about it. When once you have got a taste of the free life, fresh air, and sunshine of a kind, which is found amongst the mountains only, you can never forget it, and at times the longing to climb once again is almost irresistible. End quote. As Kia hunting is taken up by men all over the Kia country, and each man has to find out the most successful method of killing the birds, there were, and are, many different ways employed. The commonest method is by shooting them with a shotgun, and as the birds are extremely tame and inquisitive, it is not usually very difficult to get near them once they are in view. Several devices are employed to entice the birds within range, and one which is very successful is the using of a decoy. A tame kia is chained to a rock, and his noisy, excited cries soon attract other kias that are in the vicinity. As these appear, they are shot by the kia hunter, who is hidden behind a rock. An extension of this device is to get two kias in separate cages, and to place them so that they cannot see one another, yet near enough to hear each other's cries. This causes them to make a great fuss in trying to attract each other, and is generally successful in bringing down a lot of their wild mates. One man I knew used to take a square yard of scarlet cloth, which he carefully spread out over a rock, placing stones on it to prevent the wind from carrying it away. The vivid color can be seen a long distance away, in contrast to the somber coloring of the mountainside, and the kia sighting it, heedless of the hidden danger, fly down to satisfy their curiosity, and so become spoil for the hunter's gun. Some men have learned to imitate the kia's peculiar call, and this seldom fails to add heads to the heap already obtained. When a number of kias is present and the kia hunter has no more cartridges, the following trick is sometimes resorted to. While in full sight of the birds, he walks behind an overhanging ledge of rock and remains quiet. The kias, who have been watching his every movement, are almost overwhelmed with a longing to know where he has vanished. They fly onto the rock and have a somewhat animated discussion as to the reason of his disappearance. Finally, one bird walks to the edge and peeps over at him, as much as to say, what on earth are you doing there? This is the kia hunter's chance. There is a swift blow from his stick, and the kia topples over. The other birds, seeing that number one has not come back to report, but has also disappeared over that mysterious ledge, likewise go to inspect. And often quite a number are killed in this strange way. The second general method is to shoot the birds while they are feeding on the remains of a sheep. The men take the bearings of some sheep that has been killed, and if they cannot find a carcass, they sometimes kill a beast and then camp near it at night. Moonlight nights are generally chosen so that the birds can be seen at the body, and usually a number of kias fly down from the surrounding peaks and begin to gorge themselves. The men do not shoot them at once, but wait until the birds have stuffed themselves with meat and fat. Then they are shot one after the other, 
for they are too lazy and full to hasten away. One correspondent gives the following account, quote, At Makaroa Station in spring, I was shooting kias pretty well every night, when I carried a gun. I would hunt about for dead carcasses. If I came on a freshly killed sheep, or one partially eaten, I was always sure of a good haul. I would wait about until the kias came. Sometimes they would arrive in mobs, at other times in a straggling way. I would then take up my position, a little distance off the meat, and wait until they got onto it to feed. My object was to line them so as to get as many as I could at one shot. Though they would fly off at each shot, they would be back again almost immediately. I would keep at them in this way until they got a little frightened, then I would follow them up and shoot them as I could. I think the largest that I ever got in that way was 63, off two dead sheep. I have at other times got from 20 to 50, but often I would only get about six or seven, and at other times none at all. Quote. Mr. Robert Guthrie, an old Kia hunter, thus describes his experience in connection with one camp, where the Kias were very troublesome. Quote, the camp was as usual high up. It was situated on a large plateau, where it was impossible to get near without disturbing the sheep and the Kias. I used to wait till well on in the night, and go, as quietly as possible, straight to the camp. The Kias, nine of them, were there the first night. I got two of them, and they came fairly regularly until I had got them all but one. This one was from the very first, in the habit of rising rather wild, and I got to know it well from an unusual call that it had. However, although I got eight out of the nine, the killing went on as badly as ever. Sometimes as many as three sheep would be killed in one night, but try as I would, I could not steal unawares upon the culprit, for he was always alert and became very sparing with his peculiar call. After many nights of weary walk and disappointment, I had a ten-mile tramp each time, five miles there and five miles back. It struck me that its call, after it had flown away, always came from the same direction. This was across a deep gorge, among some almost inaccessible rocks. The next day I went and carefully examined the rocks, and I could see in an open crevice about sixty feet above me a hole, which I was satisfied was the key is run. I came to the conclusion that this would be a likely place for him to spend the time after his night's carnival, and I determined, therefore, at first full moon to bring my gun and watch below for his homecoming. After a good many disappointments, I was sitting on a stone about three o'clock, one clear frosty morning in August, just beneath the crevices, and was just dropping off to sleep with my gun on my knees when a black shadow crossed the stones at my feet. I looked up and saw a kia, just alighting on the edge of the rock. I had it down in a twinkling. It was no doubt the old bird, for in my time on the station, there were no more sheep killed in the camp. End quote. The last method generally employed is a very effective one, though sometimes risky, and consists in poisoning the dead carcasses of the sheep that have been killed by the kia. Strychnine is sometimes used alone, but more often this is mixed with arsenic, which is found to be very effective. A dead sheep, preferably one killed by the kia, is half-skinned and the poison is rubbed in, sometimes the kia wounds alone being treated. During the night, the birds come to feed on the remains of their earlier carousal, and usually by daylight a number of kias will be found lying on or around the dead body. One kia hunter says, quote, Another camp where the kias used to kill was very high up in a rough place, which was almost inaccessible at night. I shot what kias I could find 
about in the daytime, but never the right one, for the killing still continued. I half-skinned a sheep they had killed in the camp and put strychnine in it. When I came back in a few days' time, I found five dead kias. That ended the killing of the sheep in the camp. End quote. From North Otago, where the kias are still plentiful, comes the following account. Quote, we then baited three of the sheep carcasses with strychnine and sent a man out to camp on the spur. He picked up eight poisoned kias, two of which were actually on top of the carcass, as well as shooting twenty more of the birds, end quote. The poisoning has this advantage, that, if it does not always poison the kias that kill the sheep, it at least kills those who gather round to share the spoil. But this method, though very effective, has its disadvantages, for the poisoned carcass may remain for months and be a continual menace to all sheepdogs passing that way. Shepherds are continually traveling up and down the country, accompanied by numerous sheepdogs, which, owing to their splendid training, are invaluable in the rough country. It is almost impossible to keep them always in sight, and, as they seem to be ever hungry, unless great care is taken, they get at the poisoned carcass. In this way a shepherd, in attempting to rid his station of kias, may lose more by the death of his dog than he has through the ravages of the birds all the winter. Therefore, poisoning has to be done with great care, and rather than leave the carcass to rot, it is often finally burnt and the remains are buried. Even since suspicion fell on the kia, he has been legally branded as an outlaw. No game laws protect him. He knows not the peace of a close season. Regarded as having his beak against every man, every man's hand has been against him. Unfortunately, no full record has been kept of the numbers killed, but the following statistics will give some idea of the carnage. The Selwyn County Council has paid out, since 1887, 262 pounds, 9 shillings, 6 pence. The Ashburton County Council, since 1891, has paid out 24 pounds, 16 shillings, 6 pence, while the Amuri County Council received 531 heads in one season. Mr. Ralston, from a small run of his in Ashburton County, received 800 heads in one season, and the Lake County Council, up to 1884, had paid for 2,000 beaks. Another office received 1,574 heads, while since 1889, the Mackenzie County Council has paid out 193 pounds, 6 shillings, 6 pence, for 3,866 kias. The price paid per head by the different councils depends a good deal on the amount of damage done, though usually two shillings six pence is the price. Today several men do not consider ten shillings per head too high a price. Mr. E. B. Milton of Birdshill Station, Canterbury, in a letter to me on the payment for Kia's heads, says, quote, I have paid ten shillings per head since 1900, and in my experience the damage done to the sheep has not been serious since a substantial reward was instituted. The payment of a high price for heads is the best means of keeping shepherds and others engaged in the hill country, continually on the warpath. Four of my neighbors now pay ten shillings each for heads. End quote. Up to 1906, the government paid six pence per head, but this has been raised to one shilling, and as the station owners usually pay one shilling six pence, the men receive altogether two shillings six pence per head. When the birds are shot, either the upper mandible is pulled off and kept in a matchbox until the station is reached, or else the head is screwed off, and when brought into the homestead, threaded on a string or wire. It is quite a common sight on the back stations to see a number of old decaying heads 
hanging on a nail in some little used shed. Here they usually remain until a stock inspector visits the place, or someone pays a visit to the nearest town. It naturally follows that the heads become so decayed that the offensive odor given out from them makes it almost impossible to count them out. One county clerk promised to send me down a large supply of heads for scientific purposes, but they smelt so bad that he knew the railway authorities would refuse to carry them, and so we buried the heads to get rid of them. End of chapter 12